0: Episode fifty-seven of InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from our eleven FS recording studio in Finsbury Avenue. This is the first episode of twenty twenty, so happy New Year's and welcome back. On today's show, we're talking about direct to consumer insurance and how this market is changing to try and adapt to new ways of buying insurance. To talk about this with me, um, I'm joined by some fantastic guests. So first up, we have Phil Zeidler, who is co-founder at Dead Happy. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Sarah.
0: Can you give us a quick synopsis of what Dead Happy does?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Um, so Dead Happy, um, we set up a couple of years ago, really to address what we feel is the, uh, the challenges of life insurance. Um, three words that currently most often associated with life insurance are complex, expensive and dull. Um, and yet we don't think it has to be that way. So what we've done is completely changed the whole product. Uh, The whole customer proposition, in our view, made it um, easy, simple, cheap, uh, engaging, inclusive, and probably most importantly of all, we actually help people understand why they actually need cover.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for that. I'm also joined by Stephen Britton, who is director and co-founder of InsureTech Gateway. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Nice to have you with us. How are you today?
2: I'm very well, thank you.
0: Um, Can you do the same thing? Could you please give us a little bit of a synopsis of InsureTech Gateway?
2: So InsurTech Gateway is an incubator and specifically designed for the InsurTech space. And I guess it it would be best to describe it by the objective we set, which was to find a way to invite people from outside of the insurance market to disrupt it, which uh, why I wanted to come here today is because I'm looking for people that know how to contact customers.
0: Brilliant. Well, I'm sure our audience will have some ideas for you there. Um, and making a much welcome return, we have Oki Ilazu, CEO at Bought By Many. How are you today, Oki?
3: I'm good, Thank you very much. How's
0: 2020 treating you so far?
3: Yeah, it's been good. Um, 2019 was exceptional, and 2020, we've made a good start What for the, what, seven, eight days that we've had? We're doing all right.
0: Well, we're, we're doing better than uh, some some other people, I think. Um, can you please recap for our listeners what Bought By Many is, just yeah. briefly?
3: Yeah, no problem. Um Bought by many is um, a pet insurer, insure tech business, but really focused on um, pet insurance. Uh, we decided to make an insurance business that customers could actually love. Um, and that's now become our central purpose. Um, we do that by doing many things that Phil has actually just <laughs> described. They're trying to do with life insurance. We've tried to do um, with pet insurance, predominantly making it really, really easy. Really easy to understand, really easy to purchase, uh, really easy to claim, um, and a, a, a great experience all, all the way through. So that's really been our focus for the last um, three and a half years that we've been selling that pen insurance.
0: Brilliant. Thank you for that. Okay, let's get started. Um, to start with, I'm going to give us a bit of background to set the scene. So consumer-facing firms in all industries use various channels to market and distribute their products, and insurance companies are no different. Historically, these firms used brokers or agencies to reach their audience, but a combination of increasing numbers of people who are distrustful of middlemen, along with the need for insurance companies to reduce costs, such as fees to brokers, has meant more and more returning to channels that allow them to reach their customers and consumers in particular directly. That, however, is not as easy as it sounds. As insurance products can be quite complex and are infrequent purchases, companies both incumbent and new need to find novel and innovative ways of communicating and engaging with their audience. On today's episode we will take a deep dive into what's driving the push towards direct to consumer insurance sales and what companies must do to achieve success in this arena. So let's start with with an easy question. What do we mean by direct to consumer? I think I kind of covered it there but if you guys could give us like, you know, your interpretation of that.
1: So, so from from my interpretation direct to consumer is where as you as you've just described, you effectively are cutting out the middleman. You are giving uh, the consumer direct access probably almost uh, exclusively these days digitally online um, to product where they are in control of the whole process they have a look at the market they look to choose they define their needs and they ultimately purchase
0: anybody got anything to add to that or want anything want to add anything to that
2: i'd like to add that i mean certainly i felt in the last couple of years there's two clear schools that have emerged one is um a really stupid kind of warehouse insurance business that's just cheap and discount and following a commodified path of you know of buying um, underwriting capital and then the other which is still in its infancy is a really smart insightful proposition driven businesses that um are not commonplace in the insurance market and are just emerging and I think we're sitting in front of two of them today.
0: So those are two different um, models of direct-to-consumer insurance in your mind?
2: Well, one answers a question for an industry that's got too much cost mm-hmm. and just says let's strip costs and let's strip our middlemen. And it makes lots of sense on certain business plans, but it doesn't make sense on our business plan. Our business plan says we need to find new value and we need to find new segments. And it's exciting and it's got new expertise that the industry doesn't currently possess around beh- behavior and insight and segmentations. And um, I think we're all very excited about where that will go and how the industry will mature to make it a proper bona fide group of products.
0: So making something that's actually better, not just cheaper. Exactly. At its heart. (laughs)
3: Exactly. Time for it to grow up. I mean, and I'd add to that. I I think for me, there's a – in determining this, there's a difference between – what I call big box insurers and insured techs. so insurers well, part of the issue for insured tech businesses which is small um, fast growing businesses is that that the insurance has these huge companies with 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 lots and lots of millions and millions and millions of policies already in place and we're having to be like little speed boats trying to contact and create relationships direct with 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 customers um, different to these big um, well-known insurance names. Um, and I think there's a real difference between what, what we would do as an insure tech um, direct to a customer and say what maybe AXA or any of those big players would do.
0: Okay, well, we'll, we'll come on to that in a little bit. Um, just to be you know, completely clear, if, if maybe some of our audience who have never come across this kind of description before, if you're not direct to consumer, what, what could you be? What kind of other models are there?
1: Well, typically you've got I mean, the traditional, and if I look particularly look at life insurance, it's intermediated models, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, most life insurance is sold through the IFA uh, networks, which are, by definition, they are brokers of one sort or another.
0: So that's an independent financial advisor. Yes, sorry, mm-hmm. yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> I get I get a bit, uh, I will make you explain any, um, you know, acronym you choose to use.
1: So. Sure. So that's that's been, you know, the route to market for most insurers. And it, it is slightly, I'm not quite sure of how it's evolved this way, but if you look at it, there is, have been a real sort of dissemination of, uh, of roles within um, the market for, for someone like life insurance, so you know, the insurer has been really clear they're the product manufacturer and they'll set the rates, but they don't have any uh, direct distribution capability, so they've relied on the IFAs and their skill set has been to go out, find the customers, uh, and, and, um, and make sure that the products um, are suited to, mi- to meet their needs. Um, And so that's where the tradition has been. I think one of the questions that um, we certainly have asked uh, of consumers is actually how effective is that? How relevant is that market? How many of, you know, there's 8 million people um, who apparently have a need for life insurance who don't have a policy. So clearly that model isn't working for them. Um, And if you then have a conversation with the customer and say, well, well, actually what might work for you, Um, you know, they will describe something which is akin to what, you know, there are some... Uh, insurance sectors such as uh, private motor which is well advanced down this route where everyone has real understanding of how they can go on and control the whole process of buying a policy which they see uh, as directly online um, and they'll just say well why can't i do that for life insurance
0: anybody else any other models what about pet insurance uh, okay how could that be sold other than direct to consumer
1: i mean it's
3: predominantly direct to consumer but it can be through on um it's a really good question because it, it it throws into into sharp relief the whole idea of distribution deals, as opposed, you know. So if I sell through BMW, am I selling direct to the consumer? Well, it depends which brand you're selling through. And I know for InsurTech, some are going. We are acquiring, we are finding and acquiring customers ourselves and selling our brand at our products, or you could use um, another distribution partner and either white label them or do it in, 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 in combination and in partnership with them. So I, d- I don't think it's, it's almost to- to- totally clear. Mm-hmm. But I th- when when I think about it, I think about us selling our brand direct through to our customer, acquiring them, finding them, acquiring and selling to them without anybody between us and them.
0: So I guess there's almost three models there. Then the one you've just described, you know, literally your customer coming straight to you via your website. Then you have perhaps, particularly in your instance, you could have a vet group selling the bought by many brand so it's still the customer is still buying you know from yep. bought by many. A distribution deal, distribution deal. Yeah. and then the third option would be that you take the bought by many name off it completely and somebody else puts their name on it even though it's still your insurance policy. Correct, underneath.
3: so our deal would be what I call I don't I a B2B relationship with mm. another business and then they
1: would sell our policies often in their name. But, but I, think, uh, I think that's exactly right and the important thing about understanding why that deal still works is that the partnership deals that you're doing, uh, dealing with it, already have the customer relationship. So they've already done, they've spent their marketing dollar, they've got their customers, and what they're doing is upselling additional product. So,
0: so that would be the vet The vet already has a customer. You, you already take tibbles to the vet, so you might as well exactly. upsell on that.
1: Exactly. And, and, and why, if you look at some of the financial institutions, in theory, well, they're not very good at it, but you look at the banks and the building societies and all those uh, big organizations, they've already invested substantial money in getting loyal customers. So they're thinking about exploring ways of how they can offer additional product, and so that works because it actually is removing a cost out of the they've already spent the money, so it's removing the cost from the chain mm.
3: and it and it's really important because the the first element of it doing it direct yourself, your website, your marketing it's expensive mm-hmm. and it's hard <laughs> yeah. right um and actually, as Phil says, if you're working with Barclays with between thirty million. Customers where they've already they've already got the customer. That's a different sort of scenario you're, that you're working to to actually going to find um, customers yourself, which is is expensive and actually where many many smaller insurance companies really struggle.
0: Okay, I so think that's a pretty good sort of background set. Um, we've sort of touched on this a little bit, but let's go into it a bit more deeply. What are the, the current challenges if you're providing direct to um, consumer insurance, um, whether whether that's through the kind of the the middleman model, if you like, the distribution deal, or whether it's, you know, literally, as you've just said. So one challenge you just mentioned is how expensive it is to set yourself up and to actually reach those customers. What other challenges are there, either for, for InsurTechs or for some of the big players as well?
2: I think what's interesting about the three models that you just described also describes one of the problems is that we're talking about policies and distribution, and the customer isn't asking for that. The customer's talking about a lifetime value and all the different things that we should be offering on top. So one of the challenges that we have is the industry is being educated that we're just different distribution for existing policies. And um, and I think we need to re-educate the market of what else it could be because we've all seen the phenomenal successes of businesses that understand building relationship businesses. And I know, Phil, you know that better than all of us. But the Simply Business story is one of understanding how to keep a relationship going and not one on an insurance. And I think we need to see a lot more of that thinking um, leading the way we product develop and the way we engage with the insurance market and the customer.
0: So the, the problem at the moment is that you're just selling the same thing over and over again. There's yeah, no different. personalization, differentiation, all those kind of <coughs> just buzzwords. Just an <laughs> insure
1: taker's <laughs> distributor. Okay. And, and I think that's I think that's exactly right. If you think about, and the way that we think about the customer is our primary uh, goal as a business is to meet their needs. And those needs change over over time. And we want customers. We don't want a customer for a year. We want a mm-hmm. customer for life. Um,
0: Literally in your case. (laughs) Literally in
1: our case. yeah. And and it's a simple, it's a good illustration. It's obviously one I know well. It's a simple one to to, to show how broken the life insurance uh, market is. That the industry sells 25-year policies to a client. Now, what do you ever buy for 25 years? Do you honestly think that your life isn't going to change? Your circumstances, Mm -hmm. your needs aren't going to change. In fact, you know, every other product has a requirement that you make sure that the product... Um, still meets the customer's needs. It doesn't for life insurance. So in theory, they sell a policy and they don't talk to the customer for 15, 20 years. Is that completely you know? irrelevant yeah. by that point. Exactly. And of course, and, 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 and the truth is the customer is telling us it isn't meeting their needs because the statistic that not many people appreciate is that on average, those 25-year policies last six years. So the customer is cancelling the policy.
0: Because presumably it no longer meets their needs and they know that they have a baby, they get married, they get divorced, they buy a house, I don't know, exactly. any of those things. all sorts of things.
1: And so we we, we often in the industry are very product-focused rather than customer-focused, and that for me is the biggest challenge for any business coming into this space is how do we actually flex our products and develop products that actually move with the customer um, to, to continually meet their needs through the life. Yeah,
3: okay, I'd agree. I, I, Absolutely agree with that. I think, I mean, you're talking about the challenges. There's no doubt uh, selling direct to customers that unit economics is key, right? If you, it, you have to be able to sell economically, you know, um, and actually reaching customers direct is exp- as I sort of said earlier. It's really expensive if you're going to use Google or pay per click or facebook all this dig- digital distribution channels or you're going to spend a whole lot of marketing bucks in brand awareness this all is very expensive and the unit economics need to work and i think the biggest challenge um for for insurtechs no matter how good and and customer focused on it is is making sure that the customer uh, the unit economics work um but if you but the, one of the advantages of that is if you are thinking lifetime value then you've got to you've got a good chance, you're not thinking about one year, you're thinking, we're going to create a proposition that keeps this customer for many years. Um, and actually, the, the cost of acquisition we incur in the first year, if we can have a policy that, that keeps a customer for five years, you know, great relationship, great retention, great lifetime value, actually you can start to make the unit economics work much better when you focus on cost of acquisition against the lifetime value of that customer.
0: So, you, you know, it, it actually makes it, if you think more about whatever the product is that you're going to create that's actually people are going to want, it's still going to be useful for them, it's going to be, you know, personalized or whatever it is. If you get that right up front, then it's worth doing the expenditure at the beginning. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah,
3: yeah. Like, insurance in some ways is almost the best subscription model ever. right like if you do it well, you know, because you can keep a customer for a long period of time. And I know that in the Uh, venture capital world or funding world subscription models are the ones that people like and we kind of have the benefit of that Um, if we do a great job hopefully the customers stay with us um, uh, and therefore we can work out the, the economics over a much longer period than just a year
0: I have to say, I always find it um, very strange when a couple of the big insurers recently have come out and said, oh, we do a subscription model for insurance, you just pay monthly. And I'm like, isn't that just insurance by direct debit? And haven't we had that for quite a while? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do agree with your point about it being, you know, a subscription model at its heart. Um, could I, oh, sorry, the... yes, we'll... I think
2: there's a, from an early stage investor perspective, I certainly think that um, there's, there, two years ago, there was non-stop direct-to-customer propositions and they would come in the door with an unproven model and ask for a million pounds, of which 900,000 was going on Google Ads. Mm. And that's a terrifying prospect. Um, And the problem behind that was um, that the people who came to us weren't stopping and thinking about the customer need first. They thought they could just bash this into market. And so the equation of customer acquisition cost over lifetime value has become the mantra for early-stage investment. And if you can't walk in the door and say, I've identified a segment and a specific need, and I, can, I think I can acquire it for this number, and I can probably get a lifetime, and I can pay that back in a year or two, then the venture capital market is interested. The angel investor markets are interested. The danger is, of course, that the harder it's becoming to push this into market, that we're looking at, you know, people telling, I mean, people come in the door with, a this is an eight-year t- eight lifetime value, therefore I can spend seven years' worth of that on the acquisition cost which is a very frightening prospect Mm. and takes quite a lot of nerve to go through that journey.
0: So it sounds like um, in terms of the changes in this landscape, we've gone from sort of most or a lot of insurance being sold through a third party, um, which, as we said, has changed for different lines. You know, some, some lines have become more direct-to-consumer earlier than others. We get into that stage where, like, right, direct-to-consumer sales is, is now kind of a wider trend across a lot of types of insurance. And then it sounds like what you're saying is we're kind of almost going backwards again to a certain extent and that direct-to-consumer became everybody's first um option or that's where they went to straight away and actually there are perhaps other models that might be more effective, particularly if you're starting a company now.
2: Yes, but I think there's also, there is hope in this because where it (laughs) does work is where you have proper domain experts that really understand the customer need and come forward with a clear insight. I mean, uh, Revolut launched the most exciting, you know, the most exciting fintech launch I've seen in years on very little marketing budget, very little Google ad spend with a clear piece of product feature around an FX proposition, a a foreign exchange proposition, Mm -hmm. which engaged with an audience of people who were new. They were redefined as travelers who wanted that feature, and they managed to upturn a market that was talking about spending lots of money on Google Ads. They didn't. They spent it on product development and smart thinking. And um, so I think there is an answer in there for the early stage innovator, Mm -hmm. and they should still be looking at the direct customer space.
0: Okay, so so if we're talking about the direct-to-consumer space uh, and this sort of uh, collision with digital, is digital making that model easier or harder or both?
3: Um, Good question. I think it's making... You can start a business and get it up and running and start using Google or Facebook um, to try and get your business moving. It generally won't work unless... You get it right, Stephen said, it's, it's really, really hard work. I, th- there is one thing in digital that I think we haven't mentioned that's important, certainly in our part of the world, uh, general insurance, which is aggregators, right? This is another incredibly important part of the way the distribution landscape has changed over the last 10 years. Um, I was with someone from um, Money Supermarket the other day, and I was saying, God, do you know, how much you spend on, on marketing? I mean, and they were saying, well, th- th- kind of that's all we do. Right. Um, and, and actually, his, his assertion was that 15 years ago, lots of insurers did adverts mm-hmm. um, to, to sell their products. And most of those, and, and let's say that was 100 million pounds worth of advertising spend. Um, and he said, there's probably still 100 million pounds worth of advertising spend in insurance, but between the big aggregators, they're doing, and this is made up number, by the way, mm-hmm. um, they're doing 80 or 90 million. Right, All those other companies aren't doing it, they're, just, they're Agg- just then using the aggregator to promote their product. So when the person comes to money supermarket, they see a whole raft of products. So the, those people don't have to do that marketing spend anymore. It's all done by the aggregator, which I thought, that's a completely big shift. And if you think about it, that's probably true, because the, the only other people insurers that really advertise massively on TV say, are oh, the people who aren't on aggregators.
0: And they do so deliberately to say, you know, come to us, you'll get the best price because... You know, on the aggregate whatever.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so, so the aggregators—I'm not so much sure for life uh, for life insurance, but for general insurance—are a huge factor in the way you develop your distribution channels.
0: And, and to a sense, that makes and that kind of it goes back to the point about is it both? So, in one way, it's easier because you're not having to do that marketing spend. But on the other hand, it's harder to be direct to consumer because all I know, and then I think a lot of people are like this, is that I go to Money Supermarket or go compare any of those, type in what I want, and go for. Probably the cheapest, or actually probably we talked about this um, a few weeks ago. Not the cheapest, like the third cheapest, because people don't trust the cheapest, um, which is another whole psychological conversation to have. But, but your aggregator point, absolutely. So digital has made it easier and harder in that sense. Yeah. Um, did you want to add something there, Phil?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately it has made it. it it's made it far easier from a customer perspective. Ultimately, this is, that's that, that's the thing that we just re- focus relentlessly on. And, um, you know, if you think about, I mean, the aggregators is a really good example now. 75% of the car insurance business is done through aggregators, but they are just marketing businesses. That's all they are. And, you know, and when they first, and I have been very closely associated with various <laughs> aggregators through, through the years and seen them right from, from the start, um, you know, and, and, uh, there, there isn't you know what you've just described there, Oki, is, is exactly accurate in terms of the service they deliver. Have they added value? And uh, pro- arguably not. In fact, some would say they've actually increased. Uh, they put another mouth in the food chain, um, which is therefore, if you and, and it's not surprising if you look at um, aggregators have um, in terms of their history of setting them up on, on the continent, they've failed, uh, and there's no other aggregate uh, other sort of. Um, Territories that really have aggregators there is because they don't actually add value.
0: It is interesting, actually. When I first started looking at insurance, I realized that sort of I've been, I'm raised of a generation who just goes to compare the market when you want insurance. Like that's, you may have your preference. It may be, you know, go compare or whatever else, but that's, that's what you do. Um, I suppose, you know, to, to, to turn the, the tables on that or change the angle of that a little bit, if you um, would assume, that, say, for example, life insurance, you were historically buying from a broker, you would go to the broker and the broker would explain it to you. Um, if you're doing that digitally, is that then harder or easier to try and explain the product you're selling to a customer?
1: So, so we, we would say that life insurance is the simplest product. You're either dead or you're not. <laughs> It really isn't rocket science, and we don't understand why there's this whole, you know, I mean, there is an interest in the distribution chain to make it complex, to make it, and they use jargon, and they use language, which is just unnecessary. Um, The reason, and we're fairly, I think we may be unique. The, The question we ask all our customers when they come in is, actually, what do you want to happen when you die? It's a really simple question. It's the only one that matters, and then we help them answer it digitally. We don't provide advice. It's all just giving examples and inspirations of what we call death wishes. And some of it is practical, like mortgages and paying off debts and paying for your funeral. And then some of it is there's a whole host of other stuff, which people have great imaginations. They're actually the ones who know what they want to happen when they die. And they're all individuals and all want different things. And we see this... You know, we've got 75,000 death wishes on our platform, and there are some most extraordinary things that go on there. Now, yeah. what I'm absolutely clear about is if you went to an IFA, you would never get to any of those conclusions because people have better imaginations than the IFAs. So if you, if you think about that, then what we're doing here is we're just enabling the customer to use their own imagination far better than perhaps, you know, a third-party professional or expert.
0: And to that, um, to your point there as well, and, and to go back to, to Stephen's point earlier, you're actually almost creating a new product there as well. Because I imagine if I went to my IFA and said, right, you know, I need this much for a funeral, this much to cover, you know, mortgage, this much for death, duties, whatever. And also I want my ashes turned into an emerald that my, you know, loved one can wear around mm, their neck. A the IFA idea. would be like, <laughs> what? what? No, we don't oh. do that, thank you very much. So it, it's, it's adding a new element to the product.
3: But, that can, is, but can
2: I add another level to this? So
3: just just quickly, I think what's great about InsurTech, if you want to give these groups of companies a, a name, is they understand the way they differentiate from other big insurers is is that ability for people to understand much more clearly what it is they're buying, right? So our whole premise has been around creating products, one that people want, literally we ask them, what do you not like? What do you like? Okay, let's do the stuff you like and not do the stuff you don't like, and do you understand insurance? Pet insurance, not really. Okay, let's explain it to you in a way that is as simple as possible, right? Didn't so, you
0: say is, is it your policy that has a reading age of seven? Or that's something? correct,
3: right? <laughs> so you can give it to your child and they will understand what this policy does because actually, and it's it's the industry that's made insurance complicated, right? And it's you know mm-hmm. you know you want to insure your pet for these sort of outcomes. And if you do these sort of things, it'll be covered. And if it if it doesn't, it won't. And that means also down the, the chain with claims, which are incredibly important to us, we're not disappointing people because they don't think, well, I thought I was covered for this. We're like, no, for us, people are like, I was really, really clear what I was covered for and what I wasn't covered for. So we're able to pay many more claims, I think, than anyone else because they kind of, broadly speaking, knew what they were covered for in the first place. And I think this is... Where the huge advantages of the new companies, they know they have to do it like this.
0: So, so the, the digital element is allowing you to a communicate directly with your customers, but b to transmit the message you want to transmit, not the message that perhaps a broker might interpret.
3: Yeah, and because they have to understand it, and there's only so, you know, so much you can do when you're doing it direct and doing it digitally. You've got to make it try and make it as simple as you possibly can mm-hmm. for the for them to understand it. And I think that that makes sense.
0: Stephen, you want to jump in there, and we,
2: I did. I was. I... I'd like to take a, an example from outside of the industry because it's moved on so much further and faster from the outside in. And I, I was given an example um, by a friend of a dating app. And, uh, <laughs> by the way, you caveated that. a More of <laughs> a cousin. would never have used that. More of a cousin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's how we met. Okay, come on. <laughs> and, um, no, but it was interesting. There was a, a firm, Match.com, and I think we all heard of it. It was like the first wave. And then I read the story behind it of, and I forget the name, this is, Uh, something like Synapse was the algorithm they built behind it. But in effect, it meant that the digital promise of the story was not we'll just connect you with somebody. It is um, we're going to watch your behavior for the first three months and all the things you do to the point that we know what you want better than yourself. Because if you knew what you wanted, you'd be hitched by now. But actually Mm -hmm. the problem is you don't know what you want in the same light as I possibly don't know what I want from my end-of-life policy or what I want for my pet or whatever it might be. But the next generation of this is all based on all the stuff we're counting and watching today and our ability to then reinvent ourselves in a couple of years' time. As we spoke about yeah. earlier, okay, where, where, where will we be? We will be looking back on the data we've collected and telling people actually what they want because there's an abundance of choice. And in all this excitement of all these new products, um, we're now dealing with app stores with 200,000 options in them and not the one or two that we actually want. So for God's sake, someone tell me what I'm supposed to be doing.
0: I understand your point there. I think just a further point on that there would be, how do you get the customer's trust so they believe you? So I think the point about um, IFA is, is that the people build a relationship with them over time and then they see that that person is acting in their best interests because usually they're doing multiple things for them um, and also it, it is often easier just to trust to trust a person you've met I mean also to distrust them but you you, you know you can build up that relationship but um, what about if you know I'm like right I'm gonna go online I'm going to try and you know f- find this insurer How do I know which one is actually going to give me what I want How do you how do you try and build that, that trust up particularly if you want somebody to stay with you for five, 10, 15 years?
3: Um, the, the way we've done it is um, we talk, always talked about lifetime value, we've always talked about retention, and we've always talked about customer relationships. And therefore, we've tried to build products that work, um, and a service proposition that customers love. Now, people say, you can't love an insurance company, why are you focusing on that? Because we think it's incredibly important for us. Um, and it's important for lots and lots of reasons, retention and so on and so forth, but also recommendation. So. Business is business, and the, the most powerful thing you can have is people recommending you, especially in an age of aggregators where, as you've just described yourself, you shop by going, oh, I'll put it in an aggregator, and oh, the third one down, I kind of heard of them, I'll buy. Um, but I don't really know them, and I don't feel that great about it. How much better if it's someone that says to you, do you know what? I know you've just got a new dog. I'm with Bought By Many. They're amazing the service they gave me when I made a claim was incredible, I recommend it. People will think, okay, that's well, either when I look at the aggregator and I see their name, I'll buy from them, or I'll go direct to them. And so we've really, really honed in on the power of reviews slash recommendations in, in growing our business. Um, creating a relationship with customers and, and driving lifetime value. And that's so far so good. It really, really works. And people forget that they focus on playing the price game on aggregators, getting to the top and all of that sort of stuff. And actually, the, 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 the real benefit can be building these long, deep, lasting relationships with customers.
0: Um, int- I mean, I, I understand what you're saying there, Aki. I wonder how does that work with, with your business, Phil? Because... You don't necessarily want to have an ongoing relationship with your life insurer, perhaps in the sense, in the same way. And also, how do how do customers recommend a life insurance product if, as you said, you're not dead yet?
1: Yes, yeah, so that is one of the you know, and all the feedback that we get. And you know, the one comment we'll often get is, you know, it's brilliant feedback. We're very proud of all our NPS scores and trust pilot scores and the rest of it. But of course, the, the one hanging question is but I don't know if it's going to work. And that moment of truth is clearly um, fundamental, and just as Oki's described around what they focused on the claims process, we are really clear that we own that relationship so that when our, we have a little skull phone in our office, that when that goes, then we, you know, we get our claims through, that we will do everything in our power to make the death wishes that they've described happen, um, because that's, that is the essence of the product.
0: Have you, have you had any claims yet? So
1: we haven't as yet had any claims. I, I, Statistically I, I, we're due but we haven't had <laughs> okay. one. So, uh, you know, we've clearly got very healthy customers. <laughs> well, shall we tell the underwriters anyway? <laughs> um, but so, so it will happen and it mm. will happen soon and we're, you know, we are literally, it's just a, it's, it's a little bit like a Formula One garage. We're all, you know, <laughs> kitted out and ready to go. Because that, that is the bit that will matter. And we will build a reputation around actually delivering. And, and this is the bit that we think is probably most important of all, is we'll deliver the bits that really matter. So people won't go off and say, oh, it was great, my life insurance paid off my mortgage or paid down the debt or whatever. But what they will describe is some of the death wishes that we facilitate, which are, which are they have an emotional connection to. And it does sound a bit strange for to suggest that you can have an emotional connection to a life insurance product, but that is what we believe the Death Wish platform is there to deliver, is a personalization of the product actually that describes the, the really important things that this product will do for you in what will be the most tragic of circumstances for all your loved ones and we do describe it and watch valentine's day coming soon life insurance is it's the ultimate gift of love because it's the most selfless product you can buy if you are actually cuz you'll never benefit um so If we redefine the product in those terms, which is so far away from the very dry, very practical, very financially focused way it's sold at the moment, people do begin to understand and actually really value and feel good about having that product. Um, So, and, and it comes back to those customer relationships. We do have a unique customer relationship with every single one of them because every single one of their death wishes is different. It's unique to them. And that's the bit that we believe... will will drive huge retention and value. Um, And unlike every other life insurance, not just company but also IFA, we're going to speak to them every year and say, are these all right?
0: Are you still happy with this? Are you happy with them? So um, just to talk a little bit about sort of the, the end-to-end experience, because we, we've touched on it there. We've talked um, a, a lot about uh, distribution and how you sell. So part of direct-to-consumer is obviously that selling process. You know, how do you get people to be aware of you? How do they buy the product? Um, but then what you've mentioned there, Phil, is that actually when something does happen, it, it's a phone call. So it's still direct-to-consumer contact. It's not coming through a broker, but it's, it's a different channel. Um, okay. Do, do you take claims by phone or is yours entirely digital?
3: No. Uh sorry said no quickly. Um, <laughs> no, we, no, definitely uh, so, not. We <laughs> most definitely do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the things that, that's kind of uh, the things we think about in our businesses is we, we, we think for ourselves it's a value of ours. So we don't do, you know, if convention is you don't take calls because you're a digital business, we don't think. That's Mm -hmm. definitely the way we're going to be. We think, what's going to work best for the customer? Um, And in the claims, you know, in general insurance and in pet insurance, you're defined by the way you do claims. And if you're saying they haven't had a claim, we get 5,500 in a month. You know, so this is, these are 5,500 opportunities to, to, I hate the term, wow customer, to really show them that the promise we made them when they purchased their policy is true. It works okay um, and that's quite a, quite a responsibility and there's for me there's no way you can say start dictating but you can only do that in this way you know so we uh, do about 50 50 50 percent of our claims are reported digitally online um, through something we call snap claims which has isn't even a questionnaire um, it's it's we think is quite revolutionary because all pet insurance is like, here, fill in three pages of, of of information and we made the decision that we won't ask customers for anything that 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 we could find. We either have the information ourselves we can find out from someone else, namely the vet, which actually leaves us very little to ask a customer. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, Oh wow, it's 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 done already, you know. But equally, um there was a recent survey done by BT about there was a lot of talk about the fact that that, that young people will never phone in to do things. And what they found was that that actually it's not about age, it's about emotional state. And that when people were in a heightened emotional state, they tend to want to talk to someone, right? Mm. So you're probably going to, Phil's probably going to get that, that skull phone is probably going to ring um, because that's just an emotional state thing. And if you close that off to them, then the experience is not as good um, as, as it could be. So, yeah, we. We like to think we we do things digitally when we can, but we really, really give customers choice and do stuff that's pretty analog in a digital world. Just one last example of that is for every pet, I think I might m- mention this previously to you, uh, for every pet that passes away, we send a handwritten condolence card. Now, most people say, why would a digital business do that? Because actually we consider each individual uh, each each customer is an individual and what they've gone through. And it's probably one of the things that gets tweeted or about more than anything else we do, these mm-hmm. cards that we send to customers. And it's just the, the simplest thing for us to do. I
0: and mean, people, that's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we're talking about, you know, a lot of what we talk about here is insure tech and technology and, you know, how digital channels are changing landscapes and industries. But there are certain elements that will always have to be analog or, or people are still not ready to, to transfer. I mean, the popularity of cards, birthday cards, Christmas cards, Valentine's Day cards, you know, paper Chase isn't going out of business anytime soon. Um, so it's kind of, I think, the point being that just because you're direct to consumer doesn't mean you have to be solely digital. You, could, you can integrate other channels there to create those, those products, uh, Stephen, that you mentioned that are better than what's happened before.
2: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this generation of, of startups and these stories about being, and winning the battle of niceness. You're, I mean, this is, you, you spend a lot of time being very nice so that people like, like you because you're all new and you want to be liked.
0: Arguably, insurers have a problem with being liked, I would say, some of the incumbents as well. It does, it does feel like a different strategy.
2: Yes, I guess I never thought it was that important.
0: I don't know. Well, maybe it's not important to be liked, but I think insurers in particular are um, actively disliked. So you might feel neutral about your bank, but I do think people actively dislike insurers in some circumstances. And usually that's a result of a bad experience with a claim, I have to say. But I think if you look at some of the trust schools or the, the sentiment schools, people will say, I actively dislike. Dislike them in airlines. You know the one airline that loses your your baggage that one time or cancels that flight that stops you going to your friend's wedding.
1: That's it. You're
2: done. And maybe the, maybe the industry can't find the budget to be nice. Well, and I th-
1: you see, we we would we would look at it from a different lens that we can't afford not to be nice because. Uh, we were talking about how expensive it is to go out and win new clients. Our mm. best and our cheapest clients come through recommendation. Our member get member programs are by far deliver our, our are by far our most valuable and our cheapest route to market. So that's the one of the reasons we're nice is it's commercially makes sense to be nice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, irrespective of the fact that culturally we actually think that you know people are ultimately we're a people business. We're dealing with people. Why wouldn't you be nice? Um, but actually, it just makes commercial sense. And, uh, and I always think the word "nice" is lovely,
3: but um, actually, a word we use more is "fair,"
1: mm-hmm.
3: right? And actually, if you're fair with customers, you're clear with what they have and what they don't have. And and actually, we you know we turn down a percentage of claims, and we we and some people complain, but most people don't because they, we we spell out how it worked why we're not paying, and we believe this is fair. It's fair to them and fair to everybody else who has that insurance too. Because we care. Mm -hmm. I said it was like our our primary value. We actually do care. And I think for, this could be controversial, but I've worked for enough big insurers to say it. Um, I think when you're at scale, you don't have to, care as mm-hmm. much phil is absolutely right when you was you know when i was a pre, we had like 30 million customers right there's no way they're going to care as much as we do when we sort of tick the first one going on in the second and the third and yes we might be at 100 hundred, hundred twenty thousand now but we still care desperately about all of them um for the reasons that it costs us a lot to get but more importantly we want them to tell other people advocacy is like one of our core metrics you know we want them to tell other people about us. Um, so the way they're going to do it is that they think we care, which we do.
0: I think advocacy is a, is a core cool metric, and I'm, I'm sure you have thoughts on this, Stephen, but like generally for startups, you know, if you look at the success of even the, the, the fintechs and the challenger banks, it's it's a huge part of success when you're entering what's quite a crowded market. Um, I,
2: think, I think there's something that, um, that Phil just touched on, I wonder if I could, I wanted to ask you a more specific question. because. I think hey, there's hey,
0: something. No. I asked the
2: question, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, okay. Well, I won't make it like a question. I'll make it more <laughs> of a statement, and then you can turn it to question. But um, there's something. Um, there's a delicate place we're all a uh, thing we're trying to manage now, which is we're coming up with premium service offers. We're, it's expensive to be nice, and we're backing it with venture money. We're backing it with a lot of effort. Super passionate teams who are putting extra hours in to deliver this niceness. I mean, I'm sure you're operating, operationalizing it better than most. But then there's a phase where, and what you're doing is buying time to learn and build decent relationship and insight. And I'm imagining, if you're not already, Phil, that your, your referral business, you're discovering that rock stars are finding their rock star mates or baby boomers are finding their baby boomer mates. And what I mean is you're, you're now finding, a more, emerging is a now a more effective way of a network effect happening. And then you can say goodbye to all the nice stuff and you can say, actually, we know who our customer is. And that's a learning exercise over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know whether they are necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, the, I don't I don't see, what I don't recognize in there is the cost of niceness. Uh, actually, I don't think that we it costs us any more to do what we do in the way that we do it. Um, you could be nicer then. Possibly, I'm not saying we can't. (laughs) Um, I I don't know, and I'm, you know, I think we, you know, we listen to the customers uh, ferociously. Literally, we, you know, they are the ones that give us all the most valuable feedback, um, which I I think is something that the industry is relatively poor at doing. If you're Um, going to be
0: direct to customer, you have to listen to the customer, surely.
1: Correct. You would
3: think, (laughs) Um, and that that allows you to build propositions. Um, products and propositions that they actually value, you know I go back to the whole thing around unit economics to so make the unit economics work. Um, for us, we've had to had an average order value higher than the rest of the industry. We do that by creating some premium products, but the premium products, are just bundles of stuff that people actually really wanted. They just cost slightly more, um, but they'll, they'll buy them because it's actually what they wanted, whether it's cover for a pre-existing condition or uh, a policy that doesn't go up in price. These things cost slightly more, but some customers want that. That gives us more latitude to make the unit economics work across the whole portfolio of the business. Um, and so that's, that's also about... Um, being nice, but being nice for me is just about giving customers what they want. It feels right if you listen to them, ferociously listen to them, and continuously listen to them and understand how they're changing and evolving. You can you can you can work your business into that and and do all the things we talked about in terms of recommendation and how that feeds the other distribution channels and the economics of the business.
0: Okay, so we've covered this quite broadly, you know, and and some areas quite in depth. Um, the question I'm going to put to you is: Is direct to consumer the model of the future for insurance? I know you know each of you can take a take a turn at that, and you can interpret it as you wish.
1: Well, well, clearly we believe it is <laughs> because that's yeah. what we're building, um, and we believe it is because we believe that we, ha- in building those relationships, um, we can better meet their needs, and we think that's what customers want is something that is you know increasingly. Um, more tailored to, to to meet exactly what they need and have a long-term relationship. you know where and, and you, you you can't see this yet in our proposition, but what will come is a whole host of different other products that will uh, be things that they are asking us for um, uh, along uh, a very natural extension for us, you know whether that be the critical illness cover or whether that be things that are outside of insurance like a digital will, all those sorts of things that are related to the products. And these are, through that communication, they're things that they're asking for, we're building them, and then we're tailoring them to make sure they actually meet their needs. That's something that, on a D2C basis, you can do. And It's very difficult to do it you know, well mm-hmm. through any other uh, means. Okay. Yeah,
3: I, it's a tough question, actually, so thank you. Um, I think that it should be. Um, and um, all these really smart, businesses that are growing up, um, are offering great co- propositions to customers, but I almost go to where I started, which is, it's really, really hard, right? Because of the size of the incumbents and because of aggregators, let's say, for example, so, that, so the way that insurance market works makes it really, really hard to start with nothing, build a brand to scale enough that you can survive, you know, mm-hmm. um, And so there's some great work you need to do in building uh, a brilliant brand. I mean, I think they're happy of doing that really, really well. But the brand's got to stand out. People have got to know what it is, the the brand, the proposition, how it works for you to get over. We call it like the choppy waters when you're surfing. If you can make it over the first few waves that are going to try and drag you back into the shore and get into that calm water before the big waves come, you've got a good chance of surviving. If you can do that, I think the more companies that can do that, the more this this wave of... um, of B two C D two C companies will survive, but as Stephen said there were lots of people doing this two or three years ago, and there are less so doing it now. And I think it's less so doing it now because it's hard to get over those initial choppy waves.
0: And Stephen, how about you? When you're when you're looking for you know companies and and you're looking for companies to work with, does does whether they're D two C or B two B or have have any impact on it, or is it just you're look, just looking for a.
2: Um. Absolutely, a consumer insight-driven proposition should be at the heart of every business we invest in. Um, Do I believe that D2C is the thing to back? I think that the capabilities and the skills that are being built around this table and around the room are the best in class. But I think the future is in insight and data and that the next generation, the evolution of your businesses, the next phase of your businesses is going to be fascinating and you're in the right place for it. But I think D2C is going to look very different my um apple my apple phone knows more about my pet needs than you will find out in 20 years so how are you going to work with them to get that kind of insight to be that smart and perceptive um so how, who are we going to bring to this party and i think if we if we isolate these groups and make this uh, you know us against the world or us against the data experts or us against the industry we will miss the big opportunity to do it really really well
3: i think there's a an important thing there about you mentioned Apple about ecosystems. I think we call it, which is, and I think Phil talked about it as well. Which is, you kind of c- can kind of start in one place, but then try to be more for the customer. So we start in pet insurance, and may soon once we have a relationship with the customers, do more in terms of different types of insurance or um, different things that people pet owners would like, so wellness and 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 different points. So you, so you actually got to think not just as an insurance business, but as an ecosystem provider and be able to provide more services across that ecosystem for your customers to create that deeper relationship. But once you do that, I think you've got an even better chance of surviving.
0: So I think we've sort of, you know, touched on this. Everybody's given sort of elements of this um, throughout today's podcast, but I'd just like to um, you give me kind of a summary of what you think, what each of you thinks will be the most significant change in the D C model in the next few years but for the better or the worse?
2: I think the biggest um, change will be strong data insight driving product development. And we're going to see some really strong premium service offers. Somewhere in there will be insurance.
0: And do you think that's going to be powered by advances in technology or people um, better getting to grips with the idea that they need to do that? Because when you talk about data, there's always two sides to it. One is that people don't understand it, and the other is that we can't actually process it properly or do anything with it.
2: Um, I think it's going to be invisible and we won't have to worry about it.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah, I mean, in amongst what what I said, I I, I think uh, certainly for insuretech businesses, broadening the proposition away not away from insurance th- that makes insurance an, an integral part of other things that they can also do, I think will be a uh, um, uh, 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 next big thing. And if I could add to that. Related to D to C, I'm really intrigued to see what's going to go on with um, with partnerships as a distribution channel. You know, so we know some guys are doing some interesting things in motor with um, with car manufacturers, mm-hmm. for example, and how actually you build the insurance into the purchase of something else. It just becomes an integral part of what they do. I think insurers working really closely with other um, uh, with other um, people will. Th- become a real fundamental thing about the way insurance is sold in the next five years
0: yeah i mean we're already starting to see that as you say particularly in the auto industry but i can imagine it working well with pets as well you know you go alongside a, a pet food manufacturer or a you know even a, um, at a dog home or something like that it kind of becomes a package and you don't have to worry about it
3: and it could be both ways so it could be that that we do more of what they do as well as going going the other way so it'll be really interesting
0: okay phil
1: well, I certainly have to to, to support Stephen in that data for me is is what will make the change and and specifically the reason why I say that is what data enables us to do is to deliver products that meet the customers' needs without them really realizing it or thinking about it and that translates into customer ease. Um, People fundamentally don't enjoy spending time looking at financial services products. So if we can make it as easy as possible for them to get something that meets their needs and that will be through data, then that will be the big change.
0: I think the key point you made there as well is meets their needs because a lot of people these days buy a product because it's the first one they come to and oh my goodness, I'm bored of this already or it's the cheapest. But I think that's, that's what we really need to focus is on making sure that those products that you can get access to quickly and easily are also sufficient. They actually do what they're supposed to do.
1: Uh, exactly and, and and i do think that will be a data driven piece
3: yeah no, i i think that's totally true we we're already doing that partly now. our cmo school post marketing actually selling things that customers actually want rather than trying to market them things <laughs> that they don't want
0: <laughs> perfect all right well that wraps up this discussion thank you so much to everyone for joining me and um, where can listeners find out more about you oki
3: okay? um uh, on LinkedIn, um, Oki okay, on LinkedIn or Oki okay, okay, on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> How
0: about Port by Many?
3: Yeah, um, www.boughtbymany.com.
0: Perfect. Stephen?
2: Um, you can find out about the InsureTech Gateway at the theinsuretechgateway.com. Wonderful. And I'm Stephen at with a PH.
0: OK, perfect. Phil?
2: Uh, me on LinkedIn, Phil
1: Zeidler on LinkedIn or deadhappy.com.
0: Brilliant. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. That wraps up the first episode of InsureTech Insider for 2020. Thank you so much to my guests today, to Stephen, to Oki, and to Phil. Um, as always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instech Insiders, our 11FS LinkedIn page, that is 11FS. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, which you can find on Spotify and your other podcast providers. Also, We're relaunching the 11FS newsletter. We want to give you, the financial services community, the disruptors and the curious thinkers, a snack-sized roundup of the biggest stories of the week. Every Friday, you'll receive a summary in our 11FS style, along with interesting blogs and so much more straight to your inbox. If you're not a subscriber, do sign up today at 11FS.com forward slash newsletter. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcast11fs.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will have more on SureTech Insider for you in two weeks.